Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. Coming up in this episode, we meet a scientist who explains why studying the chemistry of the seabed could inform the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. But first, some breaking news from the world of antimatter. Yesterday, physicists working on the Alpha-G experiment at CERN announced the first-ever direct observation of antimatter free-falling in Earth's gravitational field. As expected, the antihydrogen atoms fell downwards like normal matter, rather than upwards. But the gravitational acceleration of the antimatter was about three-quarters of that experienced by matter. This leaves open the tantalizing possibility that gravity could be different for antimatter. However, this discrepancy was well within the experimental error bars. I asked the Alpha-G spokesperson Jeffrey Hankst about the significance of the experiment. So, Jeffrey, what's the significance of your measurement to our understanding of antimatter? Are we any closer to knowing why there's, there is so much more matter in the universe than antimatter? Unfortunately not, because the behavior that we've observed here is completely consistent with the behavior of matter. It doesn't point to any discrepancy between the two. The significance is that we've been able to do this at all. We actually made the first observation of antimatter in the gravitational field that indicates that there is a response to gravity. So unfortunately, it's exactly the same as far as we can tell as normal matter. And does that, does that mean that you'll be improving the experiment and in the future, um, Maybe you'll get a glimpse of something that, that we don't know. Yes. What, what we can't rule out today is that there's some slight difference between the gravitational behavior of matter and antimatter. We need to improve the precision of this experiment in the next several years to, to narrow that down. We're at sort of 20% uncertainty now. We hope to get much, much better than that to, to see if there's any slight difference in the two. You can read more about the Alpha-G experiment on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, Antimatter Does Not Fall Up, CERN Experiment Reveals. Last Sunday, NASA's OSIRIS-REx mission delivered a capsule to Earth that contained about 250 grams of material taken from the asteroid Bennu. The material will be analyzed in labs around the world, and this research could provide important clues about how life emerged on Earth, and it could also help in our search for life elsewhere in the universe. But space is not the only distant and hostile environment where physicists are looking for clues about how life emerges. 
Here's Physics World's Margaret Harris in conversation with a scientist who has taken the search for extraterrestrial intelligent life to the bottom of the ocean. I'm speaking with Pablo Sabron, a physicist at the SETI Institute and the founder of a company called Impossible Sensing. Pablo has recently returned from co-leading a mission to explore the deep sea. So welcome back. It's great to have you on the podcast. Oh, thanks, Margaret. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. So many listeners will know that SETI stands for the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And some of you are probably wondering what a SETI physicist is doing exploring the ocean down here on Earth. So, Pablo, how are these things related? What's the connection? Yeah, Margaret, I think this is a, a perfect question to, to get this started. So, uh, and I hear this often. And, you know, I, I like to remind people that, uh, you know, when you're looking for intelligence, right, uh, out in the universe, uh, uh, you're looking in a best-case scenario uh, for a needle in a massive haystack. And there are ways to do that. Uh, for now, the only way we have to really understand if there is intelligence life is by having telescopes, uh, radio telescopes, uh, rather, looking out uh, into space and crossing fingers that we're looking at the right place in the right time uh, for a signal to come to us, if there's ever a signal. But if you think about life uh, as a continuum of evolution, right, from uh, bacteria, microbes, uh, eventually more evolved species, um, uh, we all think and understand that uh, life starts with the simple and small. And there is a group within SETI Institute uh, of uh, chemists, biologists, uh, engineers, and scientists like myself that are actually looking uh, not so much with a telescope, but with a microscope, right? So we're looking down uh, to uh, places on Mars, places on the moons of Jupiter, Saturn, that uh, we know uh, have the conditions where life as we know it may have emerged. But this life, uh, if ever was there, or if it's there today, it's going to be microbial in nature. It's going to be very simple uh, DNA sequences, perhaps, uh, very early on in the life uh, ladder. So that's what we're looking for uh, in, in our groups, is for this uh, early life, uh, the onset of life 2.0, hopefully in places like Mars and the ocean worlds. So that fits within the mission of, of SETI, which is to uh, understand the origin, uh, evolution, and distribution of life across the universe. So as you can imagine, with that definition that it's so broad, uh, there is a place for people like me looking uh, at the small scale. So the mission you just co-led is called INVADER, which stands for In-Situ Vent Analysis Divebot for Exobiology Research. Um, we'll get into the divebot part later, but first, Tell me about these vents you were analyzing. What are they? Yeah, so, uh, you know, one of the most prominent theories about origin of life on Earth is that uh, uh, because life likes to harness uh, uh, gradients and disequilibria between chemicals, between temperature, energy, life likes to thrive there. It likes to metabolize all of that into more complex amino acid proteins and, uh, and, and all that, the things that we think started uh, and then evolving into marine uh, life and eventually land life and eventually us, right? So, so uh, NASA, uh, with its mission of looking for the origin of life uh, elsewhere, but also in our own planet, uh, overlaps with the mission of the National Science Foundation, other agencies across the world of really exploring these remote areas in our planet where we think uh, we may have clues as to when life started on Earth and how. So uh, hydrothermal vents is one of these uh, perfect scenarios that has this, have this disequilibria, right? These gradients. Uh, think about this, right? So you have uh, 
uh, ocean water that is being pressed down by pressure of the water itself uh, into the crust. Some of it goes down, reaches the mantle. Uh, it's heated up, it gets boiled, and the boiling process will leach some minerals, some elements out of the mantle and the crust of the, of the earth. And that pressure, uh, being a pressure cooker itself, is going to bring that hot water now reaching these uh, metals and, and nutrients in the form of volcanoes in the seafloor. There are more volcanoes in the bottom of the ocean than we have on land because there is much more <laughs> bottom of the ocean than there is land, uh, obviously. So, so some of those uh, are expressed as massive uh, volcanic eruptions. Some of others are like little trickles of, of hot fluid, as we call black smokers. And these are the hydrothermal vents that, that we have been studying for almost 40 years now. But only now, as of the last few years, uh, we've been able to bring laboratories to those uh, chimneys. And, and the reason why we do that is because they are very fragile. They're very, very fluffy, very spongy. So uh, in the past, we've been using robots with uh, mechanical grippers or hands. We kind of try to collect the chimneys, uh, but they just crumble into dust. It's like a moon dust essentially explode under pressure. And uh, so it's really hard to bring a specimen that is whole to the lab. So we can study this uh, barrier, this layer, this uh, chimney wall, which is where all this, uh, again, this chemical gradient uh, happens between inside and outside. And life makes little microtubes, microchannels in between the ocean water and the, and the chimney fluid to really thrive there. So uh, all of this is really led us to, to rethink the, the way we solve this problem into instead of bringing the chimney to the lab, we bring the lab to the chimney. And that's exactly what the Invader project is all about, is into shrinking the lab into a size that fits into a robot and without touching, without uh, destroying the, the sample itself, can do the analysis that we typically would do in the lab, uh, but in this case, in situ, in real time, everywhere where there are vents in the bottom of the sea. So what's a typical day like on the mission, like the one you've just done, the, the Invader mission? Yeah, so, uh, you know, this, uh, if you've seen movies, you know, with uh, NASA sending folks, you know, to the moon or, or robots elsewhere, uh, it, it really is like a mission control scenario, you know, where you have a team of, uh, of pilots or engineers, operators that are controlling all the communications, they're controlling the, the movement of the robot. Uh, this robot we used in, in our mission uh, last month um, was, uh, it's a robot that has two arms, right? Each arm has a lot of fingers and a lot of uh, articulations, so it can really do very, very, very dexterous things, right? Uh, and it also has about 20 cameras. So it's the job of the, of the pilots to really control that, uh, to keep the instrument safe, right, from crashing against, uh, against something. And, and then in the back row, typically in the systems, we have scientists, right? So the scientists are... I guess the, the directors, right, of the movie, uh, the scientists are the ones that are uh, telling the pilots, hey, that looks interesting. Can you get a close-up, right? Uh, or, hey, that sample is a phenomenal specimen for the lab, and let's capture it and preserve it and bring it up to the surface. So what you have is a choreography, if you want, an orchestra almost uh, of scientists, engineers, support personnel, you know, making sure that everything's showing and working and nothing, you know, nothing breaks. And it's really uh, a, a very delicate balance between what scientists want to do, which is always super exciting. You know, you are seeing things that nobody's seen before, right? You are seeing new landscapes. You are really thinking about, wow, the stuff that I could learn, if only I could get a bit closer, right? So, so you have to balance that excitement and that eagerness to really uh, do things with the physical capabilities, right, of the, of the machine. So 
that is this, uh, this day to day uh, is about kind of balancing that, that effort. And these missions typically last anywhere from 12 to 24 hours. And, you know, it's really, it's really a stressful job, uh, believe it or not. You know, sure, you're sitting in a place, air conditioning, everything looks good. But, you know, you, all your senses are put into screens and you have to make decisions very, very fast. Unlike space, here we are what is called telepresence, right? So we essentially, there's no latency, there's no delay between I want to do this and it gets done, right? So we're, we're what, one and a half kilometers uh, distance, right, from the, from the robot. So uh, a cable can transfer the, the signals in real time. So it's a very, it's a constant feedback uh, loop of, you know, instructions, information, decisions. So it's really taxing for, for us. So uh, for the most part, uh, we do four-hour shifts, right? So you work for four hours nonstop, and then you take four hours off and come back off and on. So, uh, so it's a really a kind of like a three-crew rotation, if you want, uh, which kind of, you know, uh, makes sense uh, now how costly this is, right? So, you know, you're talking about 20 people, maybe, uh, working on the clock to execute one single mission, right? And and we were there for a month. It really adds up pretty quickly. But uh, for those of you who have not uh, operated robots uh, remotely, which is probably most of you, I think it is a fantastic opportunity to really understand the the level of ingenuity of our engineers and scientists that has now enabled us to really reach places that we couldn't do before. So it is hard, it is uh, exhausting, but it's really a very fulfilling, satisfying uh, uh, work and, and, and things to do. So uh, I encourage you, you know, to, to get a chance to play with robots because not only it's fun and it's fulfilling, it's the future of what's coming. And uh, robotics, autonomy, AI, all of this is going to be part of our life really soon. So I see these missions as a preparation of, you know, us to really how we're going to interact with the world uh, this decade and next and, and, and from now on. So it was really, really exciting for me to be part of that. So... You know, you, you talked about the need to squish all your instruments that you, you normally have in an entire laboratory down into something that can, can I guess, fit on an under, undersea robot and explore the seafloor. What instruments were, are we talking about? What needs to go on to this, this undersea lab? Well, so, you know, you're looking at a lot of things, right? First of all, you want a contextual uh, instrument, so an instrument that can give you a whole picture of what's going on, right? So typically, you know, uh, RGB cameras, you know, your typical uh, uh, LSR or your, even your cell phone could work as one of those contextual pictures. You get a panorama of the environment, and that way geologists and geophysicists uh, can start doing uh, estimations about, okay, you know, how extensive is this halothermal uh, field? What more or less are the conditions in the boundary? Are there plates around? And, and you know, essentially, what is the general overall structure, geophysically uh, speaking, about this system? So that's easy, right? I mean, we've been sending cameras down into the ocean for decades now. Now, the key is uh, now the chemical part, right? So, you know, okay, what is this hydrothermal fluid made of? Is it rich in iron, magnesium, potassium, nickel, aluminum, gold, silver, platinum, chromium, zinc, you name it. So, uh, so we need to analyze almost all the elements in the periodic table, if you want, to really understand how rich this fluid is in these critical elements uh, that life need to thrive, uh, in particular things like arsenic and phosphorus, right? So it has not been easy, and only recently we've been able to really uh, bring these uh, laser techniques, right, which is the key of, of this application, to really probe into these fluids and look at these elements there. Then you have the molecular information, right? So, you know, some of these uh, elements, sure, they are dissolved uh, in water, but some of them are not. Some of them are bound into molecules, um, 
And those are the molecules that also give an environmental constraint for life to thrive or not. This is what makes the pH lower or more alkaline. This is what really creates uh, availability of water within this system so that life can transfer chemicals uh, among itself. And so, so you're looking at molecular uh, analysis as well, uh, where you're looking at is there uh, sulfuric acid, is there carbonate fluid, is there other, other compounds that really, really uh, are good or bad for life. And then you have the minerals, right? Uh, you know, the solidified materials. As this fluid is coming out and it interacts with the cold ocean water, it will immediately start to precipitate. It starts to rain down, if you want, and creates these volcanoes, right? These chimneys, that's the formations you see. And, uh, and these are uh, minerals that are uh, very rich in uh, sulfur, uh, but also have different metals like uh, nickel, chromium, platinum, gold, silver. Uh, and, and I think the key here is to understand also how the minerals distribute around the chimney, because that will give you uh, what chemists call a, a geochemical vectoring, uh, which is a gradient of these uh, minerals and chemicals that will define the limits of life. They will define where life thrives and what it doesn't, uh, what is there are nutrients, what there are not nutrients. So uh, if you combine all of this, what the context with the chemistry, mineralogy and the elements, that is the uh, unified uh, holistic interpretation that we need to make out of these events. And to date, uh, the challenge has been that the only way to do this was to really organize uh, massive expeditions with a big ship on the top, send down robots that are operated by experts uh, and pilots on the on the top, and slowly and, and systematically capture or collect water samples, fluid samples, mineral samples. So all this takes tremendous amount of time and money. And I think that's kind of one of the barriers that we've had to explore the seafloor, uh, in particular chimneys, is the, the tremendous cost that it takes there. So the exercise in the last few years in, in our team has been to package a pretty clever arrangement of cameras and lasers and and other devices that can actually explain this whole picture from big scale, right, from the panoramic uh, view to the microscopic uh, level to telling us uh, what organic compounds are existing there, what chemical compounds are here but not there, what elements precipitate uh, at this temperature but not this other. So all this uh, full geochemical, biological lab, uh, even, that's what we have been able to shrink to the size of, of a portable tool. And this is this portable tool is, is called the laser dive bot. And I'm particularly interested in what goes on with the lasers because you said that was what was a kind of a new aspect of this work. What is the laser measuring and you know, what do those measurements tell us? Yeah, so you know, uh, to understand the molecular context, elemental uh, distribution and geophysical and geochemical uh, boundaries of, of these settings, uh, we're using uh, four types of lasers, right? So in fact, it's only one laser, but it has four modalities. There is a way to control the power and the intensity and the properties of the laser that enables four, uh, four fundamental analytical techniques. And the first one is called a Rayleigh scattering. And Rayleigh scattering is what we have all seen uh, when we point our laser pointer in classroom towards the slide and, and it's green when it comes out and it's green when it shines back from the screen to you. So most of the photons that hit the screen or the sample in our case, are coming back to us uh, as the same wavelengths, as the same color as the laser that we're using. And, but that tells us a little bit about the particle distribution. If there is some uh, dissolved species in the chimney fluid, if there is uh, some organic matter that is coming down from the top surface right into the seafloor, all of those particles will scatter light, Rayleigh scattering, and it will kind of inform about the particle size, particle density, 
essentially it's telling us what they're floating, if you want, in the fluid. But really, it doesn't tell us the makeup of, of that material. It's just a physical way to analyze that. So to go into the chemistry of that, then we're uh, fine-tuning the laser a little bit, and we're enabling what is called Raman uh, scattering. And with Raman scattering, uh, it's essentially the opposite to Rayleigh, right? So with Raman, some photons uh, will lose energy as they interact with these particles in, in the water or in the rock. And this loss of energy, this loss of uh, color even, so in fact, you see the color shifting from green, which is a laser wavelength, to blue or red and others. You see this energy loss to the sample as a way to, to fingerprint what the sample is made of, right? So uh, if you look at, you know, an easy way to, to understand this is that, although not quite the same phenomenon, but it's similar, is that you look at, you know, your grass, for example, you know, you look at a leaf and it's very green in the spring and the summer. And that's because that leaf is absorbing all the colors that, you're, that the sun is shining on with, and it's only reflecting back the green, right? So, so is this uh, ability to, for, of matter of keeping some of the colors in, Remitting some others, uh, reflecting and absorbing, essentially changing the properties of light as it hit the sample. That is enabling us to fingerprint, analyze the chemistry of, of, this, of these systems with Raman spectroscopy. There are two other uh, techniques that we use here to supplement all this molecular information, compositional with Raman. Uh, first, of one, first one of those is, is ultraviolet fluorescence. And this is a phenomenon that happens when, when you shine a, a UV laser, typically in the 256 nanometer. So we don't see with our eyes, but is similar to the to the sun uh, UVC, you know, the harmful radiation. So if you shoot with that uh, light to to samples, and if there is life, uh, there is organic matter in the samples, you will see a fluorescence pattern. All these samples will glow in the dark for you, indicating the presence of organic molecules and pigments. And this is an indicator of life, right, that we use to analyze the distribution of, of uh, habitats in the seafloor, in the chimneys in particular. And then uh, there is another, uh, another uh, phenomenon that we study here, which is luminescence or phosphorescence, uh, depends where, who you ask, uh, it will tell you different ways. But luminescence is essentially a very long-lasting effect. This is an effect that you see, for example, if you are my age, uh, you know, if you're in your 40s, uh, when you were little, you had a watch and you're going to bed and the watch will glow in the dark, right? They're telling you what time it is, that phosphorescent property. So what happens is during the day, the, 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 that material uh, that glows in the dark is accumulating uh, photons. And then over time, it will emit them back to you and showing uh, shining at particular specific colors, right? So we can use that to identify rare, rare Earth elements, uh, things like europium, uh, uh, yttrium, scandium, the, the things that uh, not only life needs uh, sometimes to thrive, but also these are the metals of the future, right? So this is the battery metals, this is the solar panel metals, this is the uh, turbine. So I think uh, there is this combination of techniques that I'll, and I would, you know, uh, with uh, starting with luminescence, fluorescence, Raman and Rayleigh, give you the whole picture of all this chemical, elemental and mineral and molecular information about your whole system. And that's the, that is the secret sauce, I think, that goes under the hood here in our system. Yeah, it was interesting that you mentioned the, some of the metals in particular that are down there are useful have, and have applications uh, back up on the Earth's surface. I mean, could this technology also be used to decide where to do undersea mining? In fact, uh, Margaret, I think this is exactly one of the reasons why the expedition that we went on funded our work. Uh, and it's because beyond the scientific interest in, in sea mounds and in these areas of the, of the seafloor where we explored, there is an interest of, uh, of trying to find these uh, resources, right, of this uh, transition, energy transition minerals, uh, really, that we think 
are in abundance in the deep sea and that we think uh, may be the key to really uh, decarbonize faster than we would do if we only rely on resources from, from land, you know, from the classic, you know, China, Indonesia, uh, Russia, uh, perhaps Australia. Uh, there is no much of this metals of the future on land. And a lot of countries, uh, in fact, uh, as we speak, the, the UN uh, has an agency called the International Seabed Authority. Now, as we speak, they are, uh, they are meeting in Jamaica to really uh, come together with an understanding across the world of all countries as to what are the environmental regulations to eventually unlock uh, deep sea mining. It's not happening yet, but it's very likely that it will happen. So work like the one we're doing is uh, hopefully allowing uh, countries to identify these resources, but more importantly, identify habitats and ecosystems. Uh, remember that we're looking for life as well, right? So started, we started there, in fact. Uh, so we're, uh, we're really bringing that layer of uh, environmental survey, environmental characterization, so that uh, we can uh, protect biodiversity in the seafloor and only extract and develop resources in areas of low bioload of, or areas with low diversity impact uh, when it comes to biology. So it's a very intricate process, but I think it's really uh, showcasing to me, Margaret, the value that moving away from the classic sample, shipping the sample, going to the lab and waiting weeks, if not months, with a massive cost, it's really showcasing to me the value that this real-time bringing the lab to the field is really having in this new field of deep sea minerals, right, uh, as we try to decarbonize the economy. So it's really exciting on that dimension as well. And aside from needing to squish things down into a, a smallish container, I mean, how, how big is the lab that you've put on the laser dive bot? Yeah, so, so uh, this one is, uh, remember, this is our first prototype, right? So this is the version one of the system. And this is pretty small already. So this is about uh, one meter in length by about 20, 25 centimeters diameter. So it's like a poster tube, if you want, uh, a little little further, but uh, but it's pretty pretty small. And, and it's about, I think it's about 70 kilograms already. So it's pretty compact inside, uh, but most of the mass of that weight comes from the titanium case. So one of the things that you do in the, in the seafloor, typically if you're exploring, is you use titanium because it's a very resistant material and it's relatively light, but still, you know, uh, we have about half an inch, uh, a couple of centimeters of titanium tube, right? So uh, the mass is pretty, pretty hefty. We're now uh, building version two of this system, which is going to be about half the size. So this will be a proper positive tube, still one meter long, but it's going to be uh, about 10 to 15 centimeter wide. So it's a massive uh, weight and, and volume reduction, which will enable us to, to really take on more ambitious missions, such as plugging this instrument into autonomous vehicles, right? So no more joysticking uh, a big robot from the surface. Now you can actually, from, so from shore, without having to have any boat, you can just go into the dock and launch a fleet of these vehicles that carry this payload and can autonomously on their own, go out and scout the seafloor and come back to, to home, come back to mission control, reporting a scientific map already. So um, that's the future of, of the tool we're building right now. And obviously, you know, if, if you continue to miniaturize this, then it, I guess, becomes possible that you could conceive of launching it on a spacecraft to possibly see if the oceans that are thought to exist under the crust of Europa might have uh, minerals or even life or organic matter. Exactly, Margaret. And I think this is what beautifully to me closes the circle into, you know, we started with a NASA uh, investment, right, uh, on this project. We unlocked uh, collaborations and work with ocean uh, scientists and ocean engineers and agencies across the world. 
to understand the ocean better. And by doing that, uh, we're able to automate, miniaturize the system enough that now NASA can uh, finally, hopefully, in the near future, pack it up into a, into a Europa uh, mission, for example, or Titan or, or Enceladus even, where we are going to be very, very mass and, and power constrained. Think about it, right? So we're going to be five years uh, out in the solar system. There's almost no sunlight, so you don't have much energy to start with. Sure, you can bring uh, radio isotope power sources, but they're going to be limited anyway. Uh, the problem is that you're going to have to drill a, a hole into the ice so that you can descend with a probe and eventually hit the, the ocean. So, of course, you know you cannot melt or drill a one meter uh, wide hole, and you're going to have to make it super small. Right? So making things very skinny and thin and small is a requirement, not just an advantage, it's a requirement uh, for these missions. And then these missions will eventually uh, hit the, the water, hit the ocean. And uh, the reason why we're excited about uh, Europa and Celadus and other moons perhaps is that we have been able to sample from space, from a flyby mission, uh, what this ocean under the ice looks like. And it's very exciting because it contains alcohols, it contains silica, it contains compounds that are only possible to form in the presence of Hydrothermal vents. So we know now uh, indirectly that there are vents, much like the ones we have on Earth here. There are vents like that in all these moons. So our hope is that if life ever emerged in those systems and we found it, uh, this will really uh, check two boxes, right? First of all, uh, this will be a clear and ambiguous finding of life 2.0 uh, out there, but also it will verify and validate the hypothesis that life on Earth ourselves may have come from a hydrothermal chimney ourselves. So I think it's a pretty fascinating story. And, and, and I think you're right. I think this uh, automation, robotics, uh, even AI, as we're using it right now, uh, is really coming together into now uh, ability to, to launch more ambitious missions to space to, to find life elsewhere. Now, apart from um, shrinking the instrument by the amount you said down to more like a poster tube, what, what else is next for you? What do you have planned? Yeah, so uh, so I think I touched on that in the last uh, response is the AI, the, the big data, the analysis, the, the being able to, to really go past the traditional, uh, oh, I'm getting data and then I'm going to think about it, right? We're going to skip that process, which is also very time consuming. And we're trying to bring, build intelligence into our systems. So when I mentioned earlier about uh, having a fleet or a swarm of autonomous vehicles underwater uh, scanning uh, the seafloor and the ocean around them. By that, I, I implied and I mean that uh, we're developing the whole autonomy and intelligence operational capability, a way for these uh, vehicles to talk to each other, right? A way for them to self-navigate, to find the hotspots, to decide where to go, where not to go, to maximize the science generated every kilometer, every hour, right? Uh, and, uh, and that's really, really the next step is to really uh, essentially make these robots scientists themselves, right? So uh, is to really give them a map, you know, draw the lines, the contour and the waypoints perhaps and say, go and come back with a science paper already written, right? So uh, come, back, come back with a, with a real chemical mineral map so that people, our people, can spend time making decisions, not 
crunching data, but actually making decisions that matter. And, and you know, if you look around you, right, and as we're trying to really uh, decarbonize the economy, transition from carbon to mineral economies, right, I think every day at this point almost matters, right? And, and, and if you look at the way we explore and we decide our what to do or not, uh, in the case of deep sea mining, it's a case in point. We cannot wait 20 years to do it if we're going to do it. Right? Uh, we don't have 20 years. Uh, we need to do it now. And the only way to do it now is to really uh, build this intelligence, this autonomy, this uh, skipping all the steps that we know how to do now and build it into robots and just use our human creativity, what we're good at, at making the decisions that matter to us. So that's the next step, uh, Margaret. Pablo Sobrun, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks, Margaret. The pleasure being here. That was Pablo Sobron of the SETI Institute and Impossible Sensing and Physics World's Margaret Harris. Thanks to Pablo and Margaret for a fascinating conversation and to Jeffrey Hankst for his insights into antimatter. I'd also like to thank our producer, Fred Isles. That's all the time we have for this week's podcast. We'll be back again next week. But in the meantime, do listen to the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast, which investigates alternative ways of generating green energy. Host Andrew Glester is in conversation with Nicole Kaplan of the European Space Agency who is investigating the feasibility of sending a fleet of solar cells into space and beaming the energy they generate back to Earth using microwaves. Also on hand is Danny Coles of England's University of Plymouth, who explains how we can extract energy from the tides. And the conversation is rounded out by Douglas Gillespie at St. Andrews University in Scotland, who assesses the risks to large marine mammals from such infrastructure. That episode is called Green and Novel, The Future of Energy Generation, and it can be found on the Physics World website or at your favorite podcast provider. And that's where you'll find all episodes of the Physics World Stories podcast. Physics World.